Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Okay, y'all happy now? We finally have a race for governor. Welcome to the Texas Take, the number one political podcast in the great state. I'm Scott Braddock, editor at quorumreport.com, and with me as always, as reliable as they come, standing sentinel over all of what's happening in Texas news, is ace reporter at the Houston Chronicle and San Antonio Express News, Jeremy Wallace. Hello, sir. Hello. I can never live up to that type of introduction. <laughs> <laughs> now you slink away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. No, you're going to offer up the news and analysis. Ready? Okay. We have to start with Beto right? He's running for governor. And for how many months did I listen to Democrats in this state, both privately and publicly, complain, whine about the fact that he's not running yet? And why is it that we don't have somebody stepping up to challenge Greg Abbott? I had argued through the summer, Jeremy, that he was sort of kind of running already anyway, right? He was doing yeah. rallies and he was talking to people on, uh, you know, both uh, local and national broadcasts and organizing around what was happening with the Texas Democrats who were in Washington on the voting rights issue and all of that. But they were not happy. Democrats not happy with that. They want him to announce for governor. Well, he did it. And it was kind of in a low key way. He did a number of exclusive interviews, including one with you. The, the, all these interviews were exclusive, right? Over the last over the last week, I think yeah. all every single time that he talked to a magazine or a newspaper or a television station, all of those were considered exclusive. But the way he actually rolled it out was a pretty low key YouTube video, right? It's, it wasn't it wasn't what some people might have expected from Beto O'Rourke, which would maybe be to uh, be on the roof of a Whataburger uh, with a skateboard and then actually skate down into the parking lot where a Willie Nelson concert is happening and everybody's lighting up doobies. No, it was nothing like that. They probably had a meeting where they floated some stuff like that. And then they said, no, no, no. You know what would be better? Just let's strip it down. Let's do like Beto Unplugged, which is kind of what you got in this video. I'm running for governor and I want to tell you why. The why to me is very interesting, especially what he started with, which is something that Lieutenant Governor Dan Patrick has been talking about a lot. The first thing he mentioned is the electricity grid, and he said that it needs more attention from state leadership. This past February, when the electricity grid failed and millions of our fellow Texans were without power, which meant that the lights wouldn't turn on, the heat wouldn't run, and pretty soon their pipes froze and the water stopped flowing, they were abandoned by those who were elected to serve and look out for them. Now, that's just a one-time disaster, right? Or not? It's a symptom of a much larger problem that we have in Texas right now. Those in positions of public trust have stopped listening to, 
serving and paying attention to and trusting the people of Texas. And so they're not focused on the things that we really want them to do, like making sure that we have a functioning electricity grid or that we're creating the best jobs in America right here in Texas, or that we have world-class schools or that we make progress on the things that most of us actually agree on, like expanding Medicaid or legalizing marijuana. You know, you have a lot of Republicans who would agree with the last two things that he talked about. The expansion of Medicaid is something they're more open to in places, uh, in rural rural parts of the state where it means a lot for their hospital funding, uh, on legalization of marijuana, the RPT itself, the Republican Party of Texas has taken a different stance on that yep. in recent years. And so this is part of the strategy to reach out to some of those disaffected Republicans, people who might be disappointed with Governor Abbott about this or that. I did think that the toned down way that he did this may have been just fine, Jeremy, because this is not somebody who needs to introduce himself to Texans. Everybody knows who Beto O'Rourke is. In fact, the name ID is so high, you don't have to say his whole name. You can just say Beto and everybody knows who you're talking about, not just in Texas, but around America. Now, the proof's in the pudding. Did he get good reactions from crowds around the state? He started barnstorming the entire state of Texas in places like Corpus Christi, where he was firing up the crowd at a local bar. And there was a gentleman across the street who was yelling over here, and he said, are you there for Beto or are you there for the drink specials? To be clear, tonight I am here for the drink specials. I want us to have a good time. Now, while they're having a good time, uh, the governor has already been on the attack. As I said, Jeremy, it was like this guy's already running against him. And there was a brief YouTube video just put out by Abbott. What was that it was featuring um, Will Ferrell? Yeah, just you know, taking shots at Beto, saying it that his rollout was so flat. But he has all these clips of Will Ferrell. You know, Will Ferrell. You know, let's go back to 2018 when he was campaigning like crazy for Stacey Abrams. You know, in Georgia. So I'm thinking Will Ferrell being in an Abbott ad might not be quite connecting the dots right here. <laughs> yeah. When you were in Corpus Christi with Abbott uh, about almost two weeks ago at this point, he was talking a lot about the issue of guns. And yep. we are going to hear uh, this uh, argument from Republicans throughout the entire election. I think that this is right where they want to go. And of course, it's the other things too. It's oil and gas. It's, uh, you know, God and country. It's, you know, faith and family values and guns. This is a Second Amendment loving state. Go back to when was this? 2019. Here's the flashback. Um, and I want to play the entire thing because what you're going to hear from Abbott over and over is about the last seven to eight seconds of what I'm about to play for you. Um, when Beto said, hell yes, we will take your gun. We will take your AR-15. Uh, your AK-47. Um, but here's the larger context. He was asked about a mandatory buyback program and whether he supports that for those certain assault rifles. And here's the entire answer. I am. If it's a weapon that was designed to kill people on a battlefield, if the high impact, high velocity round, when it hits your body, shreds everything inside of your body because it was designed to do that so that you would bleed to death on a battlefield and not be able to get up and kill one of our soldiers. When we see that being used against children, 
And in Odessa, I met the mother of a 15-year-old girl who was shot by an AR-15. Mm -hmm. And that mother watched her bleed to death over the course of an hour because so many other people were shot by that AR-15 in Odessa in Midland. There weren't enough ambulances to get to them in time. Hell yes, we're going to take your AR-15, your AK-47. We're not going to allow it to be used against our fellow Americans anymore. You spoke with him on Sunday, right? And you covered a lot of different issues. On this specific question about guns, you wanted to drill down about what he now thinks. Because I heard from a lot of even some Democrats who said maybe uh, he should have uh, demonstrated some evolution in his thought process on this because he's running for a very different office. He's not trying to be the most liberal. Because look, let's, let's also provide this context. When you're running for the presidency, one of the lanes you try to get into, if you're a Republican or Democrat, is get into the more extreme wing or the more liberal or more conservative wing of the party as you try to figure out you know, where you're going to land in that presidential race. In this, it's a race where there is no primary for him, right? I mean, the, the field is cleared. Somebody might uh, you know, announce on the Democratic side and file for governor, but it's going to be Beto, right? He's going to be the nominee. He doesn't have to worry about that. And so your conversation uh, was centered around this idea, right, at least, at least on the gun issue, uh, about where his thinking is on this now. And he's not really backing off what you just heard him say, right? Yeah, exactly. And one really important piece of context. Remember, when he said that, he was in Houston. The clip you just rolled, he was in Houston, and it was just two weeks after the shooting in Odessa in Midland. And just a couple weeks before that was the El Paso shooting. So you can imagine the emotion there was pretty high. This was, you know, you know, a lot of people say, oh, he was trying to win over the, you know, the far left of the party. Mm. You know, I tell you, it's like there's a lot of emotion at that point in Houston at that point still. You know, it's like remember where we all were having just seen these two shootings, you know, go down and wondering like the impact of this. So, so the one thing I kind of try to remind people, it's like at the context of that, you know, as important as it being said during the presidential race was mm -hmm. just literally two weeks earlier is when that shooting had happened. But so, but clearly, you know, as we spoke about last week on the take that, you know, we were talking about how Abbott went right at this issue. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I, my questions to, to O'Rourke was, look, how are you going to deal with this? You know, there, there's a state, of Texas that Abbott is going to pound this idea on that you want to take everybody's gun. And so that is what like I want to get at. How do you fix that or how do you address it and how do you make that work? Yeah, so here's what he told you on Sunday. We, we are a proud gun-owning state and, and I count myself among those who grew up with guns in the household, who grew up hunting with, with relatives and friends, you know, was taught how to fire uh, a pistol by my, my great uncle, who was the jail captain mm -hmm. at the El Paso County Jail, a member of law enforcement here in Texas as a sheriff's deputy. Uh, he taught me that responsibility, and, and I have that with me to this day. It's how we've taught our kids uh, in, in, uh, in our family, and I, and I think this is a, a value that, that most Texans understand and from which we can work together to protect the Second Amendment and to reduce gun violence in Texas. So are you still supportive of a gun buyback program for AR-15s then? We, we've got to, yes, we've got to find a way to, to get these weapons of war um, out of our, our communities because of the danger that they pose. You know, in the announcement video and in some of his interviews, he talked about the constitutional carry or permitless carry of firearms legislation that was passed into law by the Republican legislature this year. And I think it's um, 
perhaps a missed opportunity, Jeremy, the way Democrats are talking about this. Beto and others will say that the problem with the constitutional carry law is that you have people walking around with no firearms training uh, and that just anybody can can buy a gun, which is a little bit more of a shift because we're not requiring uh, the same kind of training and paperwork for people to carry a handgun around. But that's not the big problem with the law. That's a problem with it. Right. I mean, people uh, you know, were concerned at the time as this was uh, being passed that, yeah, you would have people going around with no training. The concern that was raised by prosecutors and law enforcement is that if you don't have uh, you know, the paperwork for uh, the sales of firearms and the people are going to walk around with these firearms, then that makes it easier for criminals to walk around with them. Yeah. Right. So so you never hear the Democrats like Beto put Abbott on defense about this issue. When it would be real easy for them to do that, a Democrat like Beto could say what they passed, and this is backed up by the, by the prosecutors who were concerned about it. Remember, the bill kind of got held up, not in the House, but in the Texas Senate, because the lieutenant governor and the sponsor of the bill in the Senate wanted to work with prosecutors and law enforcement to address their concerns. It was the cops. It was the people who keep us safe who were worried about this. And the Democrats don't say that. He could just say a version of, hey... The Republicans want to make it easier for a criminal to walk around with a gun in Texas. Instead, he kind of says permitless carry. And most people probably don't even know what that means. Yeah. And, and you can see him going in that direction. You know, if he did it. You know, he said, did it in my interview, too. But like he also did it on some of the national TV interviews where he talked about like he wants to have this conversation on guns. If Abbott's going to come at him on that one piece, he's coming back at him on you know, the idea of permitless carry. And, you know, he, he keeps pointing out that over a five-year period of time, there's 35,000 people who did, you know, had their permits to, you know, carry rejected. It's like, now those people can go get a gun. And so he's, he's you can see he's creating this image of, okay, it's like, if you want to, you know, yell at me about, you know, taking away people's, you know, assault weapons, mm-hmm. I'm going to come back at you with, you're, you put 35,000 people back on the street with guns without any permit whatsoever. You can see where this is going to go sometime in October. Remember this, folks. We're going to come back to this, and this is going to be the showdown on a debate stage somewhere in the state of Texas. Right. And, you know, I still have to handicap it for whoever is perceived as perhaps the more Second Amendment-friendly candidate in this state, for sure. But I do think that the attack on Beto as being the quote-unquote gun grabber, I think it's a little more nuanced now given the policy that's actually been enacted by the Texas legislature and signed by uh, Greg Abbott. Now, in his first national interview, because he had that exclusive with Jeremy, but in the first national interview of the campaign, he was talking with Chris Hayes at MSNBC. Beto was in Laredo as he took aim at the way Governor Abbott has handled border issues. We are a state, and in this case in Laredo, a community of immigrants. And their presence here makes us stronger, makes us more successful, and makes us safer than we would be otherwise. This is a really great thing that we have in Texas, the fact that so many people from around the world have chosen to make this state our home and make us so much more successful by their very presence. But the last thing we need to do is what Greg Abbott has been doing. He's been calling this an invasion. He's been asking Texans to take matters into their own hands. These are literally his words. 
And it's that kind of dangerous rhetoric that inspired somebody a little more than two years ago to drive 600 miles from Allen, Texas with an AK-47 and open fire on people in El Paso, killing 23 of them, claiming that he was there to repel an Hispanic invasion of Texas. That's also the cost and consequence of Greg Abbott. That is not a Texas value, not for Republicans or Democrats alike. That is too extreme, too radical, and too dangerous for this state. The crowd there uh, behind him really liked that answer. He's going after Greg Abbott, and I expect that from him to be attacking the Republican incumbent. But here's what's maybe more interesting about the border issue. Uh, Beto was also on KTVT, CBS 11 television in Dallas-Fort Worth, where reporter Jack Fink asked him if President Biden is responsible for some of the chaos that we have seen in the last few months down on the border. It's clear that President Biden could be doing a better job at the border. It it is not enough of a priority for his administration. And there's so much more that he could be doing, whether that is marshalling the countries of the Western Hemisphere to meet uh, ahistorical challenges in migration, asylum seekers and refugees, whether it is making sure that local communities have the resources to meet some of the challenges that they face, like those in in Del Rio and otherwise, and then also using the power of his office to move this country forward on immigration reform. Immigration reform that listens to the people of Texas, Republicans and Democrats alike. We've gotta have predictability, order, and the rule of law. And that means honoring our asylum laws when someone has a credible asylum claim. But Jack, that also means, and this is not popular amongst all Democrats, But it means that when someone comes here and doesn't have a credible asylum claim and has entered in between ports of entry, they should be deported back back to the country from which they came. We've got to follow the law and then we've got to improve the laws that are on the books. This is where some Democrats get crossways with their base. There are those uh, who are in the further left of the party who would say that all of what needs to happen on the border or most of it needs to be focused on humanitarian efforts, taking care of the people who are coming in. In a lot of ways, they would sound like old school Republicans who would say family values don't end at the Rio Grande and we need to do more to help these folks as they're coming in. Then you have, uh, and this was true with President Obama, who was criticized right from his left as being the, quote, deporter in chief. And of course, you had the Republicans at the same time saying that he was not tough enough about what was happening on the border. Uh, President Biden did get some criticism from his left. Right. When he was talking, when he was you know, deporting those Haitian immigrants and there were uh, you know, statements from the White House that, look, what we have to do is follow the law on this. And now you have O'Rourke here breaking with the administration as he runs for governor of Texas. And this is right out of the gate, Jeremy, to say, I don't agree with the way they're handling the situation on the border. It underscores once again that it is such a no-win issue, but it is one based on whatever information and data that they're seeing, whatever polling they're seeing, um, that Texans at large don't really agree maybe with Abbott or Biden about the approach. Yeah. And and there's a lot of disagreement within the Democratic Party, depending on where you live. You know, look at where he's making that, you know, that statement. You know, he's saying those statements in Laredo. Uh, And I was, you know, like, really, you got to look at what he's just done this last week. He spent three days on the Texas border uh, going to Laredo, McAllen, Brownsville, uh, three days of the initial, you know, kickoff. He hasn't set foot in Austin or Houston, you know. You know, before he spent three days in the border, right. that to me is a guy who's figured out or come to the realization he kind of stunk on the Texas border. 
You know, it's like I've reported this quite a bit. You know, it's like he really, un- you know, how he did so much better than Hillary Clinton and mm-hmm. Joe Biden in most of the state, right? Except the border. Like right. he did poorly in Laredo, he did poorly in Brownsville and in uh, Hidalgo County, like in all those places, he did a lot worse than Hillary Clinton did. And so he's on the border right now looking for some answer of how do what do I say down here? How do I find the right mix of my politics and pay attention to these folks? If he's going to have any chance of beating Governor Abbott, who is absolutely the favorite in this race, right, just because mm-hmm. of the nature sure. of Texas, yeah. if he's going to have any shot, he needs for the border, he needs Laredo, he needs Hildago and uh, Cameron County to really kind of pull out for him, to really have higher voter turnout. He get, like down there, it was 39 percent turnout mm-hmm. in you know his race, you know, in those five counties that make up from Laredo to Brownsville, you know, 39 percent. The rest of the state was 53 yeah. percent. Like there's clearly a problem there and they've got to fix it. And the fact that he's going there right away and, you know, talking about not just the border, but you hear his conversation in Laredo and in McAllen. It's like, you know, it's like we got to talk about more than just immigration down here. So he started talking about the schools, which is a huge deal because you talk to any regular folks down there and they feel like they've been slighted by the state of Texas for decades. Like some right. for some reason, our schools aren't getting the attention it deserves. And you know, watch watch this conversation on the border kind of shift and not just be about immigration and border walls or no border walls. Yeah, right. And I think that's the focus of a story you have coming out this weekend. Did you kind of also get into uh, just the fact that you do have Republicans looking to expand their footprint in yep. Texas down in the valley and in you know in the valley specifically in South Texas at large? You have Republicans trying to basically open up a new front in their uh, fight for a bigger majority in Texas. And that's the thing with the Republicans around here. The, the majority is never big enough. They want to continue to expand it. And at the same time, this is sort of the split uh, screen effect. You had Beto on one side of your screen, if you're watching the cable news or TV news at night, and you've got him announcing for governor. The Democrats are fired up about this. At the same time, you've got a party switcher in South Texas who just went from being a Democrat to a Republican earlier this week. Now his district was changed some in the redistricting process. Make it makes it make a little more sense for him to, you know, switch over to Republican. What he said in his statement, though, about why he was doing it, Representative Ryan Guillen, in switching from uh, Democratic to Republican, said, uh, you know, it's a new new take on an old, um, you know, refrain, which is the party has left me, and the party has moved so far left that it no longer represents the same values that my community uh, holds dear. Uh, And so I do think that when it comes to South Texas, there is a realization that whether it's a thing that is a long-term trend or maybe something that was just a blip because we were in the Trump era and everything's kind of, you know, turned over, turned on its head, um, but that there will be some fight for South Texas. And and put it this way, a Democrat like O'Rourke, is unlike Wendy Davis and unlike some previous past Democratic candidates, they're just not taking it for granted. His campaign's yeah. not going to take it for granted that, oh, we'll do fine in South Texas. We don't have to do anything. Yeah. Well, and, and, and you know, I, I did address that, you know, it's like the fact that, you know, the Republicans smell an opportunity. And, and, you know, granted, the Trump election is one thing, but they said the structure down there, because of the oil and gas you know, jobs, because of the rural nature of a lot of those communities, they act more rural than they do, 
you know, uh, than, than people realize, you know, it's like, so like you're, if you're in free or Duval County, it's like a lot of people there have tendencies, even if they're Democrat to go a little bit more Republican because of the nature of being in, you know, the rural nature of the community. Right. And it's like, it's different than in the city of Laredo or in the city of Brownsville. And so you see Republicans are, you know, are really kind of going after this area. So O'Rourke has a double problem. He has to fix his own problem, you know, that he has on the border. Mm-hmm. And he also has to, you know, push back against a new wave of Republicans who are making a stand down there. I, you know, I, I've spoken about Bill Young. He's a, a Republican, uh, a former part Republican Party chairman in Webb County. And he says, like, there's a lot that they have going on now that he couldn't have imagined even years ago. You know, they have momentum now. And so that's what Beto's going into a headwind <laughs> at the same time that he knows he has a problem down there. So it's yeah. like, watch this for the, you know, this during this campaign, this is going to be really intriguing to see what happens in places like Webb County, which is just, I think, is going to be the center of the of the entire fight. All across Texas, candidates have been signing up to run for office. That's a former Fort Worth Mayor Betsy Price filing to run for Tarrant County Judge looking for, is it, is it uh, a promotion to be Tarrant County Judge or would you rather be Mayor of Fort Worth? I'd that could be six one way, half a dozen the other. I'm not sure. Uh, similar scenes playing out all over the state as candidates decide whether to push in their chips, file to run for Congress, Texas legislature, local offices as well, Jeremy. It's really, you know, put up or shut up time because you have the different chatter about people might run for this or might run for that. I get all the rumors on my phone, people texting. They want to use signal. They want to call. They want to meet in the back alley somewhere. Hey, you didn't hear this from me, but so-and-so might run for this, might run for that. You've got several uh, big retirements uh, that then also open up opportunities for people to run for the next thing, you know, to either make their first push for office, some people who might want to run for uh, state house of representatives or some people who might want to, you know, get a promotion to Congress um, in, Houston, Garnett Coleman, who's been a chairman in the Texas House for a long time. He's been a member for 30 years, for three decades, a real fixture in the Texas legislature. I remember almost 20 years ago interviewing Garnett Coleman when I was working at KTRH in Houston, working the morning shift. He's one of the guys I could call at 4.30 in the morning because we're doing the morning news that starts at 5 and get him lined up to do some radio with us. He'd be like, you know what, Scott, I'm going to splash some water on my face. I'm going to wake myself up and you'll call me back. Okay, that kind of thing. Always, you know, had a great relationship with Garnet. Um, and he is somebody who is well known uh, for his uh, activism on various issues and his work on various issues. Um, I do know there were some Democrats who were not um, 100% pleased with him earlier this year when he was the guy who was at the center of it when the quorum was put back together allegedly, in the Texas House, uh, and he gave a big speech about bringing the institution back together after the Democrats had been in Washington for about six weeks. I will say this, Jeremy, and there was, uh, by the way, there's one other big um, announcement we expect by Saturday. I've heard enough. You know how Dave Wasserman, that guy with uh, Cook Political Report, he likes to say, I've seen enough, and -and so-and-so has won. I kind of manage my rumor mill in a similar way. I've heard enough to say that I do think that on Saturday – Congresswoman Eddie Bernice Johnson is in all likelihood going to retire. Um, And I had heard a little more information on that last night. If you're listening to this on Sunday and that's not what happened, just skip past this part of the podcast. Don't worry (laughs) about that. When my rumors work out, uh, you know, I take a victory lap. But if they turn out to be wrong, I just pretend like it never happened. Anyway, (laughs) it it sounds like she's probably going to. So there'll be a scramble for Coleman's seat. There'll be a scramble for EBJ's seat. 
in Congress. One thing that people need to understand is just like in the movie, what was the Tom Hanks movie with the uh, the women baseball players? Um, League of their own. own. League yeah. of their own. There's no crying in, poli- in, in politics. There's no crying in baseball. We can't be sentimental about this stuff. A career comes to an end 30 years after the guy first runs for office. And guess what? They're already lining up to run for that uh, seat, right? Because, look, this is the reality of it. He announces retirement. Coleman does. And within a month's time, we're about halfway through the filing period now, I guess. And by December 13th, folks who want to run need to make those decisions, right? And so we'll see those all over the place. We are now at more than 20 retirements in the Texas House. I think we could see as many as more than 30 uh, retirements in the Texas House. Just this morning, uh, the speaker, Dade Phelan, uh, he was speaking to a business group in Austin, and he said he expected there would be 40 new members of the Texas House by the time we get to the next legislative session. There's a variety of reasons for this, right? That you see so many retirements this year. It's a big wave of retirements. I saw some folks say, well, you know, looks like it's picking up a lot. This is probably because it was such a nasty year legislatively. It's supposed to be a part-time legislature that meets for five months every two years. Instead, they were there for about 10 months and a lot of it was completely miserable. And for some of it, Democrats were, uh, you know, having to be working on the road, you know, in Washington, you know, because of the, uh, because of the quorum break. Um, The redistricting process, Jeremy, left most incumbents with seats that they could probably win if they, and Republicans and Democrats, if they want to go for it, if they feel they can raise the money and campaign in maybe a few new neighborhoods, they'll be just fine. There are some exceptions to that. Some tough decisions had to be made in certain places. And there are some brand new seats where it's a wide open scramble. But I do think that the nastiness of this year contributes to the speaker saying you might have as many as 40 new members of the Texas House by the time we get to the next legislative session. If it was just getting through redistricting, if that was the issue, I would think the number would be more like 25 or 30 because you do have members of the legislature who want to put their imprint on the state's politics going forward through the next decade because that's a lot of what redistricting is about. But once they get through it, then they'll step aside. They'll say that's enough of a career. Retirement is always a very personal decision, whether you're in politics or in personal business. There's no set year that you have to do it. Right. There's no um, there's no specific rule on that. I've done some reporting on succession planning in different uh, industries, and that is always a real emotional thing. Isn't there a whole show called Succession that's all about the drama that (laughs) that, 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 you know, that surrounds that whole issue? Uh, You know, when you're talking about a family business, right, that that it's emotional for a reason. In 2017, I'll provide this context. There were a wave of retirements, um, not among legislators but among political professionals in Austin, people who are lobbyists, some staffers and others. And it affected for our private business at Quorum Report, it affected our subscription base a little bit. I started to notice that we had people who had been subscribers for years and years, in some cases, decades, who were not renewing their subscriptions. And I'm big on customer service. I start reaching out to people and say, what's going on? Do you hate what we're doing? Are you tired of the Quorum Report? Or No, it was just people saying, hey, I'm not going to be doing this anymore. I'm, I'm leaving the business. And I would say, well, what's up? And in those conversations, what became clear was that because 2017 
was such a nasty legislative year. You remember, this was the year of the bathroom bill debate and all these attacks on transgender children. It just felt especially nasty to people that you had a bunch of folks who were maybe, you know, in the end of their career anyway, they're getting to the end of the career. But in those conversations, people would say, you know, maybe I could do one more legislative session or two more, but I can't do this anymore after that session was just like that. And I do think among legislators now that they've gotten past the redistricting process, you know, save the uh, legal um, you know, maneuvering that's going to be coming up with the lawsuits that are underway, uh, that among legislators, there's a lot of the same thing going on where there are a lot of them who say, look, you know, I could probably run for reelection. It would probably be just fine. I could do it. But do I really want to come back to a legislature like this, which is not uh, the same as yeah. it was when I first got into office five years ago? 10 years ago or whatever. Yeah. And, and, and it's interesting because like, you know, the, every, you're right. Everybody has their own reason for what they're doing. Uh, but, you know, look, not all retirements are, are equal, obviously. Some of them are really a big deal. You know, it's like we brought up Coleman, you know, talk about like a guy for 30 years. Like he wasn't just a fixture of the Texas house. This guy was a fixture of the third ward and a real voice that you could trust. You hear people talk about him in the third ward uh it, and it, when you look in congress eddie bernice johnson retiring like understand what that means that is like the most senior member of the entire texas delegation is about to hang it up you know it's like uh, you know, sheila jackson lee and unless Lloyd i'm Dawkins. wrong jeremy What's unless that? i'm wrong yeah well i'm yeah, saying if, unless if she, i'm wrong yeah if, if, if she hangs if she it up that, that's a huge <laughs> blow in terms huge. of like kind of yeah. who we've had as a you know, top leader right. you know you know for for the for the Texas delegation up there. Mm -hmm. Well, now I have to be right. Um, so you know, you better this, be right. <laughs> <laughs> again, if I'm wrong, you just skip past this part of the show. How many times do I have to say that? So this was an interesting uh, twist on all of this. John Whitmire, who is the dean of the Texas Senate, the longest serving senator, Democrat from Houston, uh, says that he's going to serve in the 2023 legislature, and then he's going to run for mayor of Houston. He wants it all. And he announced this at a big rally uh, this week in Houston. I'm no longer considering we're not asking people. We're running for mayor. And we intend to win. He says he's running for mayor. He intends to win. Um, that, uh, that look, it's something he's been th thinking about for some time. This has kind of been an open secret in Austin that he was looking at it, Jeremy. But uh, I will tell you, in covering John Whitmire over the years, and yeah, I've known him also, you know, about at least two decades, something like that. Uh, and he's been in the legislature since the 70s. He was a House member and then has been uh, in the Senate for, for many years, uh, you know, building up that seniority. Uh, the, uh, the one who gets the highly privileged motion you know, they're in the Senate whenever they do that. Um, it is a big deal. And you have him signaling that even though it's not going to be for the next legislative session, he's out, right? That's, that's the end of an era. That's the end of an era in the way that Garnett Coleman not being there is the, yep. is the end of an era as far as the kind of uh, brain power, the kind of institutional knowledge that will be lost when some of these people retire. And, you know, those two are Democrats, but there's Republicans as well. And we've talked about this. Coleman, one of the best minds on uh, health, some of the healthcare issues and local government issues, right? Dan Huberty, who's retired as a Republican, former public education chairman, 
one of the best minds on how school finance in this state works, as you noted on a previous show, uh, Kel Seliger, who is probably, I guess, the only real Republican maverick in the Texas Senate, somebody who has that independent streak, Jane Nelson who is the finance chair, retiring, the master of the Texas budget. Uh, it's a Herculean effort to put the Texas budget together. It's a quarter trillion dollar document written over a 24 month horizon. Could you do that at your house? Right? They say like writing, well, people uh, often want to oversimplify and act like the government's budget is anything like your budget at your house. And um, I think the best, the best way to put it is that, and I, I, I can't remember where I heard this, but somebody said, Parking your uh, truck in your uh, driveway is to, you know, it's basically like the difference between that and landing on the moon is what your house budget is like versus a state government budget. Yeah. Like they, these things are nothing. They kind of sound similar, but they're nothing, nothing alike. Right. The brain drain at the Capitol is serious. Yep. Yep. You're going to ha and it's happening Absolutely. among staff as well. And so it will be a very different environment uh, with, given these people who are leaving. And then we'll see, you know, who steps up to take these seats coming back. But, you know, freshman members of the legislature, they, they come in and, you know, they think they're going to, uh, you know, change the world. You know, whether it's Republicans or Democrats, they think they're going to come in and uh, pass all these uh, new laws and, and reform things and change it all up. And uh, as one veteran legislator said it to me one time, he said, you know, you do. You come in with your idealism and all of that. And then once you get to the Texas Capitol, you figure out that a lot of what you do is just call balls and strikes on which industries are going to make more money, you know, through different regu regulatory decisions and things like that. Uh, the new members come in and they get uh, sort of used to the biorhythms of the building. It can be frustrating at first. The fact that they can't come in and just change things immediately uh, for the first couple of months of a legislative session, they can't even pass any laws unless the governor, you know, opens something up as an emergency item and those sorts of things. So you go from the uh, sort of crucible of going through a campaign and winning your race based on promises to the people who vote for you and then get into government and then really figure out how things work. And some of these Democrats who are now leaving are the ones, Jeremy, who, and I would make this point to some of my good friends who are Democrats who'd be listening, who think that some of these more uh, establishment or institutional uh, Democrats are the party with, you know, the, the problem with the party is the way they would say it, because they get along with Republicans too much. But guess what? There's a reason some of these folks have been able to thrive under different you know, kinds of leadership. Yeah. Garnet Coleman was there for, I think, six, five or six speakers yeah. and was relevant all throughout. Same thing was true for uh, Sylvester Turner as one of the Craddock D's. He was one of uh, Tom Craddock's chairman, but then was also successful, uh, influential under Speaker Strauss, you know, as serving on the Appropriations Committee, one of the top um, you know, budget writers in the state. To be a Democrat who wields power in Texas is an art form, right? That these, these junior members who are coming in won't really know how to do that just yet. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like uh, looking at guys like Lucio, uh, Eddie Lucio Jr. down in the, you know, who's been in the legislature forever. But you mentioned John Whitmire, like understand how long that guy's been and what he's seen. You know, it's like he's coming in in 1973 into the, you know, Texas House. Uh, that is the year that LBJ has just passed away. That is where John Connolly still has, you know, influence over Texas politics. You know, it just shows you like how long that guy's been around where the Democrats were in complete control uh, and, you know, you know, if I think about like watching, you know, this state vote for Jimmy Carter, you know, as a state legislator 
right? You know, and then you know, shifting to the Reagan era and watching mm-hmm. all that change happening. That institutional knowledge of kind of like, you know, you know, you hearing him a lot in the last couple of sessions, you know, special sessions and the regular session, you know, warn about look. You know, things come around. <laughs> you know, he would have known because at one point, whatever the Democrats were doing to the Republicans, the Republicans one day would end up doing to Democrats. And whatever precedents are being set right now of how you treat the minority, guess what? The one thing we know, it's like eventually it'll shift. You know, it's just the nature right. of politics. Things They're swing talking, back and forth. Talking about that uh, during their debate uh, last night on the Build Back Better legislation, I did tune in and watch part of uh, Kevin McCarthy's eight-hour speech on the floor. I didn't understand how he was able to speak that long when I thought they had you know, pretty strict time limits on their debates in the U.S. House, but it turns out the leaders can speak as long as they want. Correct. Is it, yep. They have the, what do they call it, the magic minute yep. uh, rule for, yep. the, for the leadership. Uh, one of our uh, congressmen from Texas, Jake Elsey, was sitting behind uh, McCarthy as I was watching it on C-SPAN at about 1130 last night because that's the kind of dork I am. And at one point, I think he might have been drifting off to sleep a little bit. Somebody had to text him and wake him up. They'd been up there for a long time. Um, Quick roundup of some of the news that is going on other than these campaigns. Governor Abbott, Lieutenant Governor Patrick, and Speaker Phelan have moved just this afternoon $4 million from prisons to pay for elections audits. It doesn't seem clear, Jeremy, exactly what they're doing with this, although it looks like uh, more of sort of just the succumbing to pressure from former President Trump. I do think that the governor continues to worry about you know, whether Trump might either withdraw his endorsement, come out against him, or slam him again as saying that what he's doing on elections is weak, even though the legislature spent eight months passing that elections bill, which now some of President Trump's supporters uh, say is not good enough. So we'll watch that space and figure out what's exactly going on with that. I'm not sure if it's for a broader audit or if it's for what was passed in the elections bill, which is not, there's a difference. What Abbott called for was the uh, audit of four large counties. In the elections bill, there's an audit that was authorized of four uh, more random counties. They have to be two big ones and two smaller ones, right? So yep. it's not the same. Uh, so we'll figure out what's going on with that. It's It was sort of amorphous as it was announced by the big three uh, Republican leaders this afternoon. The fight over vaccines continues in Texas and across America. This is a culture war issue straight up. You know, I at first was hesitant to, to label it that way, although I will take some credit. I think the afternoon that I did an interview with the Houston Chronicle, they put me on the coronavirus chronicles. It was the top interview on the website for like that 48 hour period. I don't know why people wanted to hear me talk about this stuff, but I think I was among the first to label this as a culture war deal because everywhere you go, people are talking about it. They're angry about it. It doesn't matter if they are in favor of vaccines or against vaccines on this point, which is that people are just exasperated by this, right? The people who are more pro vaccine and get it done. Can't believe why the other people don't agree and vice versa. So, it's a culture war deal. On Fox News Sunday, which I watched at your behest, you had said Paxton's going to be on on the show. Our Attorney General, Ken Paxton, was grilled by Chris Wallace about the fact that he and Governor Greg Abbott have said businesses can take care of their own workforce issues. But at the same time, both of them, Abbott and Paxton, support banning businesses from implementing vaccine mandates of their own. 
So how does Paxton square that circle? You say Texas companies should take care of their own workers. So given that, how do you justify the governor of Texas, Greg Abbott, issuing an executive order that bans any business in Texas from issuing a vaccine mandate? And and how do you justify uh, the governor issuing a ban on all school districts on mask mandates, uh, a, a ban that was overturned just this week by a federal judge. So I justify the governor has the authority under state law in an emergency to, to respond to these types of issues. And so he's done just that. Obviously, it's his view that these mass mandates are unnecessary and that vaccine requirements are also unnecessary. So it's my job as a state's attorney to go defend what he's done and what the legislature's done. I'm perfectly comfortable doing that. And what Texas law actually says is the governor is allowed to do things to try to mitigate a situation, right? In a disaster that he can do things to try to make the situation better. And there is a decent argument that he is doing some things to make the situation worse right and i'm old enough to remember about a month ago when the governor was saying publicly his office had put out statements that said business in texas doesn't need state government to tell them what to do right and then there was the 180 within about two weeks the governor put the issue on the special session call with only a few days for lawmakers to maybe address that and he issued this executive order well uh, chris wallace was not happy with that answer. It didn't make a lot of sense to him. He tried about three times to try to get Paxton to make sense out of this. He said, look, it's hypocritical to fight the president for telling businesses what to do and then support the governor telling businesses, uh, on the other hand, what to do, right? Telling them that they can't have a vaccine mandate. I just want to do, go through this one more time. You're saying that they should have the uh, authority and the ability to decide what their workers should do. The governor's executive order prohibits them from deciding what they want to do. He bans vaccine mandates. Isn't an, um, a, a mandate by the federal government, are you saying there's a difference between a mandate to get a vaccine from the federal government is different in terms of the ability to take care of their own from a state mandate not to have vaccine mandates? Well, I think your question is a little confusing, but yes, the federal government has no authority to do this. Right now, we have OSHA guidelines that have not been authorized by Congress. They absolutely have no authority to do this. The governor has a different authority under state law that the legislature's given him, and he's operating under that state law. And so, so we're so doing he our can, best to defend. He, so he can tell private businesses what to do. It's okay, it's okay and, and they can't take care of their own? Well, look, I've, I'm more, I'm definitely agree that states have more authority over uh, over these areas than the federal government. This is the argument that is the default for uh, certain Republican office holders when they have what is to to an average person would seem like a clear moment of hypocrisy that the president should not be able to tell businesses what to do on this issue, but it's okay for the governor of Texas to do it right. And and this argument has been out there for a while, I think it's really been solidified as just the go-to argument ever since Republicans took over state government in Texas and in other places, is that basically state government is sovereign and almost infallible. And the federal government derives its power from the states because of federalism, right? So, so any powers that are not specifically delegated to the federal government are reserved to the states. You've heard these people at the Texas Public Policy Foundation and these other quote-unquote think tanks say things like this for years. And on the other end, Jeremy, you have different layers, federal government up top, 
state government in the middle, and then the local governments down below. Well, local governments in Texas were at one point run more by Republicans, certainly than they are now, especially in the big cities. True. So now this argument goes uh, that the federal government gets its power from the state and the local governments, because they are political subdivisions of the state, that they get their power from the state too. So the only level of government that is, can never be questioned is state government. Otherwise, you see, well, and look at it, the embodiment of it is Paxton, right? He's in court with the feds on this. He's been in court with all the local governments in the state. How many entities is the state of Texas in court with right now over these issues of vaccine mandates, uh, mask mandates in schools and things like that? Um, and I think that when it comes to these issues that are culture war issues, that's why I talked about it that way at first, we're in a moment of such populism within the Republican Party that it doesn't matter what you said two weeks ago. It, people want to hear you say the thing that they want to hear you say. And they, and they want to hear it now. Right. Yep. And that, and that's, and it, in a way it sort of unmoors some of these office holders from any sort of real ideology or from even anything they personally have said previously. And they don't even really feel, and this is what's I think really frustrating to folks, including myself, the governor doesn't even feel a need to explain it, that, that he's, that he's doing something completely different from what he had said, you know, two, three weeks ago to a month ago, that business should not be told by government what to do. But then, you know, within half a month, he's saying the opposite. And every business group in Texas came out against what he was trying to do, which I had never seen in all the time I've covered this. Every business group in the state come out against the Republican governor on a big initiative. Yeah, it's turned into a, you know, don't tell businesses what to do unless it's something that fits within my political sphere. Right. Right. You know, it's like, you know, I'm against mandates on businesses if it's about something I disagree with. But I am for mandates on businesses if it's something I do agree with. So right. it's just it just becomes this, uh, like you said, it's a culture war at this point where, mm -hmm. uh, you know, it's like there's going to be hypocrisy you know, built into it, you know, it's like, there's going to be times and we've seen it before, you know, we've seen it with mm -hmm. all the local government fights too. You know, it's just like, you know, we're not going to mandate anybody do anything except we're going to mandate cities and counties can't do this. You know, it's like, it's just always something, you know, that seems to poke a hole in it. And everybody I'm sure is fighting for people's rights and people's health or whatever. And that just conflicts right together. Right. right. So, and where are we on the COVID numbers at this point, since we're talking about vaccines, what's going on in Texas? Oh, I'm depressed about this. Uh, the, yeah. the hospitalizations are starting to creep up a little, just a little, but you know, we were going through this stretch since really since uh, mid July, uh, you know, where the numbers have starting to go, come back down it looked like things were getting improving. But so, yeah, COVID hospitalizations went back up to uh, about 2730, I think, 2730 people, uh, which is a far cry where we were. You know, there have been points where we're well over 10,000 hospitalizations, so we're not quite mm -hmm. there yet. Um, but we did go up a little bit just in the last couple of days. We're up about 50 people just in the last few days. And their deaths, you know, we officially crossed over to 72,000 people who have died in Texas, a uh, hundred you know, more reported deaths just this, this afternoon. Mm. Uh, so this is not going away. And there are some signals that we either plateaued or we might be going up a little bit in our hospitalization. So when you're at Thanksgiving folks, be careful.
Just wash yeah, your well, hands. Just wash yeah, your hands a lot. <laughs> yes. Um, it's a good, it, well, that would always be a good idea, but it is a sober reminder that this just is not uh, over with. I, I do feel like that's enough show uh, for today. You know, if you are a fan of the show, you should be a subscriber, of course, on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, have you listened to your favorite podcast? Give us the best rating that you can. Leave a nice review. We did get a, a pretty good review from a prominent Texan when you were talking to him on Sunday, right? Yeah, I, I barely said the word hello when mm-hmm. you know Beto O'Rourke decided to tell me what he thought. I've been listening to you on Texas Take. I just discovered the podcast in the last couple of months. It's really good. I, I just I just discovered I didn't know it existed to to my shame, but it's it's great. I love it. To his great shame, he only discovered the show recently and to my relief that means that he didn't hear a lot of the critical things i said about him in previous <laughs> campaigns he can hear all the critiques that i have going forward uh from now on that's very that's very nice of him i'm going to challenge some of our republican listeners because we have lots of them yep. to go and leave reviews that are i'm gonna put it this way because look this would be an, a real easy thing for republicans to go some of them because we have our critics right so some some people might say oh it's the democrats they love you no 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 Republicans love this show as well. So what I would do is this would be my spin on it is Republicans should go leave reviews that are better than what Beto just left. Yeah. Right. The Democrats and Republicans should compete for leaving the most five star reviews for the show. And Beto, since you're listening, this is what this is my ask. Just tell three friends and, and anyone listening can do this. Tell three friends about the show and they'll tell three friends and they'll tell three friends. It's a Ponzi scheme to keep us number one. Subscribe to quorumreport.com and houstonchronicle.com, and we will see you next week. <laughs>